Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And that's education which is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It's accessible to all children. It's a very, very basic principle. Children should not have any fees or religious tests or any tests, whatever, placed upon them that might hamper their educational opportunities in the public system. As well as that, our public schools should be public in ownership and control. We can forget about public-private partnerships and putting the next generation in hock for their schools for the next uh, 30 years or so. And we believe that our public schools are the only ones that should be publicly funded because they're the only ones that are publicly accountable. Now, we know that in Australia this has long since ceased to be the case. But we are there to be actually very conservative and say that we should go back to the good old days when public education in Australia was leading the world. We have a website at www.adogs.info and our press release number 698 for this week reads as follows. America is catching up with Australia in the downgrading of public education. Trump's budget slashes funding for public schools while giving $1.4 billion for privatisation. Now, for 40 years, Australia's public education has suffered grievously, while Lib Lab governments have toadied to the private religious sector. Every year, billions of dollars of public money, our public money, has been systematically diverted from our public systems into what can only be described as dependent parasitic systems which undermine our civic and civilised democracy. In March 2017, many public school advocates are attempting to persuade the Turnbull Birmingham government to provide a few more crumbs from the private school table for the so-called Gonski reforms. And they're working very hard at it and all all power to them. Union representatives and parents have travelled to Canberra to give him their Gonski messages. 
All they want is a few billion for the disadvantaged children in our public schools. Birmingham cannot even provide this, even though he admits that some private schools are overfunded on his own generous terms. Meanwhile, Mr Trump, to howls of rage from from advocates of public education in the United States, is going down the same slippery slope as that pursued by Australia for the last half century. And listeners, while people, including yourselves and us, are holding up their hands in horror at Mr Trump, please note that in the education field, Australia has been doing what he's now about to do for the last 50 years. Now, Trump is giving only $1.4 billion for privatisation, which in the Australian context is peanuts, given the billions that they have already got and the billions they are continuing to get every year. So just think about that. Trump, however, is also slashing funding for public schools in the United States. So what is unusual about that in the Australian context, the dogs ask? Because in America, the Supreme Court protected public education for a longer period of time than did our High Court. So over there, it's early days yet for the privatisation process. And there... As in Australia, supporters of public education are marshalling to fight and fight hard. Dogs have been fighting harder and certainly longer than they have, and we wish them well. John Foster from the Gippsland has provided the following information, very interesting information for our readers, and it comes from the Network for Public Education. Uh, They have a website, www. Network for Public Education, or one word, dot org, and we can recommend it. And there's some very interesting material on it, which Robert will tell you about a bit later. Now, uh, they have noted that Donald Trump's education budget is a declaration of war on public education and the nation's neediest children, and was almost certainly designed by Betty DeVos. His budget is going to tax after-school programs such as the 21st Century Community Learning Centres, which help school districts, churches and non-profit groups serve more than 1.6 million American children, most of whom are poor. In defending the cuts to such programs, now listen to this. This is the quote of the week, listeners. The White House Office of Management and Budget Director, Mick Mulvaney, said, after-school programs don't show results. (laughs) He went on to say that feeding children after school has never been proven to get them better jobs, so we cannot afford to do it anymore. A full stomach for a hungry child is not good enough, but there is $1.4 billion available to send them to voucher schools and for for-profit online learning. 
So there's money for the private sector to potentially get money from the public purse to offer some kind of education which is probably unsuitable for these children, but there isn't any money to feed them first. The budget, the Trump budget also slashes programs. Oh, before we go on with that, I'd like to say that in the Kennett times, Mr Kennett of Beyond Blue, who's just given up Beyond Blue to Julia Gillard, yes, remember that Mr Kennett? Back in the 1990s, one of the first programs that he also did away with here in Melbourne was a wonderful program at RDOC. And this RDOC program, the teachers were making sure that the children who were literally coming off the streets because they were homeless were well fed before they ever sat down in the morning to learn. And it was working and it was working well and they were getting them homes and they were keeping them fed and they were teaching them. But a child without a full tummy cannot learn. Any teacher will tell you that. So what else is he slashing? Say he's slashing programs that prepare disadvantaged middle and high school students for college. College assistance for first-generation students is also being reduced. And if disadvantaged students are still able to get to college, it'll be harder for them to stay because Trump's budget cuts funding for federal work study programs. So the biggest proposed Trump cut to education is the total elimination of what is known as Title IIA funds at about $2.4 billion. A significant share of those funds is used to keep teachers on staff since the recession. So that means either increases in local taxes or in class sizes. And yet there's ample funding for school privatisation. So Trump's budget contains a 50% increase for charter school funding, a $250 million private school choice program and $1 billion for a fund portability program which is nothing more than a disguised voucher system. Portability could bankrupt some public schools and slash funding for the rest. But America's a little bit different in its funding operation to Australia. The states and the local um, government have quite a big say in education in the United States and there have already been some states which have questioned and which have rejected charter schools and voucher funding. So it's going to be a very interesting story in the United States indeed. And they have already set up this network for public education and they will not stand by and allow Trump to break the public school system and crush the dreams of millions of children. The Network for Public Education believe in the promise and the hope of an equitable education for every child. A shotgun system of segregated private schools, charters, virtual and home schools is a recipe for disaster. And if they want to observe the disaster in the making, they should come over and see what is happening in some parts of Australia. So they are girding their loins for the battle that, of course, the dogs are very familiar with.
they are preparing to barrage Congress with their emails and I hope they can get through to Trump and give him their own tweets. And that's their first step. And they're going to provide one-page informational sheets every week to teach us and their people about the threats that charters, vouchers and tax credits have for public education. And they're going to have call campaigns. They're going to flood the White House and Congress with social media. So all power to their arm. So I thought that that would be of interest to our people. And I thank John Foster for sending it to us. We've had other correspondence from down Frankston Way from Meredith. And Dale will give that to you after a little bit of music. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM. It's good to have your company. That's a lovely little organ piece there, played by David Kinsella on a lovely little organ in um, Orléans in France. Um, it was from the Sweet Eloquence, and it was obviously on the organ. It was his Sweet du Premier Ton, or Sweet on the First Tone. That was a trio, hence the three little fingers moving around on the keyboard, making three different melodies all at the same time. Aren't they clever back then? Mm. But as Jean promised, Dale is going to um, let us into some of the correspondence that's been sent to us, some very interesting correspondence. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, we've got a great letter here from uh, Meredith Newman down in Frankston. Thanks, Meredith. Yeah, we very much appreciate it. Uh, and I'll, I'm just going to read it all out. Um, it's entitled, uh, Who Speaks for Our Government Schools? Michael Moore, Academy Award 
Award-winning investigative journalist from USA, in his well-researched SBS documentary film Where to Invade Next, showed various superb government schools and education systems in Europe and Scandinavia. These strongly unified and democratic countries give full enthusiastic support to their local and nationally, stand- and nationally high standard community schools. Here, each child from all social and economic backgrounds, including their royal families, together receive the best possible education, free, universal and secular, from kindergarten to tertiary levels. Highest ranking Finland, for example, where school fees are illegal, stressed the importance of no more than four to five hours in a school day and set no homework. The free afternoons and evenings allow the children to develop their own interests independently as well as with family and friends. Well-planned five-star school meals were also considered of prime importance in Finland's vision. For the best ultimate social, emotional and physical development of its future citizens. Taxation was surprisingly only marginally higher than ours, but covered so much more in excellent health, social services and peaceful international relations, which with military spending a low priority, unlike here and in the USA. Governments and people in continental Europe proudly and wisely believe that their taxes so invested will best unify and be of best benefit for their communities and ultimately all people worldwide. Jean and Robert Ely, presenting The Dogs over many dedicated years in Australia and in particular on Melbourne's 3CR each Saturday morning, have battled relentlessly for the fair and reasonable aim of, pro- of improving our government schools. The Melbourne Unitarian Church greatly enjoyed Robert's thought-provoking address on the 26th of February with their inspiring motto, Seek the Truth and Serve Humanity, Fully Support dogs in their quest and possible dream. Now our education system is virtually at crisis point. With continuing low and rapidly declining standards and results culminating in dramatic TAFE and university dropouts. In marked contrast to Finland, we see our children divided and relegated into an apartheid cash, class or creed system. The people's education taxes are increasingly being channelled into so-called private or religious schools through their powerful lobby groups, ensuring that the government that government schools remain disadvantaged and receiving far, far less. Instead, Indeed, our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, Turnbull product of the private system, as are most other MPs, stated on the ABC that he was only interested in funding the private school sector. Freedom of choice, presumably for the well-heeled only, is the usual ridiculous catch cry. As a teacher in government, primary, secondary and special schools in Victoria, England and Scotland for over 40 years, it's been worrying to note the overwhelming number of teachers who send their own children to either private or religious schools, strongly tending to deflect their loyalties and salaries to these business organisations. It will be interesting to see these statistics as well as a number of politicians in this category and also to examine the paradox of so many students from wealthy parents studying in the few high-achieving selective government schools. Bright children from poor families have little chance to qualify for entry as the usual expensive coaching and facilities required are out of reach. Finland 
conversely, ensures a unified, progressive nation as a whole, rather than this sadly self-centred small-mindedness. If Australia miraculously managed to break the long-outmoded upstairs-downstairs of the English-Irish mindset, preferring instead to direct our wealth into schools and education systems like Finland, we would have the blueprint for ongoing success and highest education standards for all our citizens. Also, wealthy and ambitious overseas parents would be alerted, providing a new surge of conscientious students and welcome cash as well. We would then truly be recognised as the educational paradise of the Pacific. Thanks, Meredith. Oh, thanks very much, Meredith. You're listening to the Dogs Program, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And before we go to Robert, I would like our listeners to understand that our Robert is now Dr. Robert. Yay. That's right, I'm here that's right. looking at a very handsome young man Woo. in a in a oh, an academic we mode we with uh, red. No, no, red one's, no one's interested in you. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Congratulations, Robert. Uh, that's all very that's good. A lot, of hard work. a lot of hard work, that's right. And obviously I'm here to defend government schools. I'm here to defend education. I'm here to defend it because I I got a lot of it, so there you go. <laughs> I was I was one of those lucky enough privileged people um, who happened to be of a certain age that, that where such things were allowed. Mm. Um, where, where such things happened, whereas young people these days, I, we're here to defend them and their right to get a PhD in the future mm. if such things exist, and I'm sure they'll have to. Not just for the wealthy and the well-heeled, mm. not just for those people who happen to be born into families whose parents are wealthy enough to support that idea. Because mm. rich ain't clever, and clever ain't rich. But we'll come back to that particular idea um, um, after. I think let's have some more music. Let's have another trio. Um, this is a trio on the second tone, or the uh, trio on the second tone, not the first tone. But listen again this time. There's three separate voices, but he's only got two hands. I don't know how he does it. David, <laughs> David can sell it, but he does a very he good job. He does it with about four fingers, too. <laughs> oh, yeah.
some lovely trios on an organ. Um, you listen to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S. We have a website too, just by the way. Um, you can check us out, all the things we're saying. If you think we're spouting rubbish, you can you can, you can can get on the website and check us out. Um, and email us if you like. Or if you agree with us, you can do the same thing too. The email, by, or the, email the website is www.adogs, adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Now, as regular listeners to the program um, know that uh, I sometimes go off on tangents. I bring in other ideas to the education sphere and take a deep dive into into larger ideas. Um, and today I'd like to discuss what is called the Cobra Effect. Uh, the Cobra Effect, some of our listeners might know what that is. But the Cobra Effect um, comes from something that happened when the English turned up in India. Um, they were the colonial masters and they turned up and they ended up after about 50 or so years with the East India Company ruling this entire place. And, you know, they started to have, you know, Victoria was the empress of India. But when they got there, they worked out there were some things that were different about India than, than, than in the hometown Hampshire. Um, one of which was there's all these cobras all over the place, all these poisonous snakes. Now, they've been there for a while, but the English really didn't like poisonous snakes. I think it comes from the Judeo-Christian background, perhaps. I don't know. Um, snakes are bad, so we've got to get rid of them. So <laughs> the colonial masters decided, um, once they colonised India, that um, um, they'd get rid of all the snakes. So what they did was the British government, being concerned about all the poisonous snakes, decided to offer a bounty for every snake that was killed. Mm. So that way all the people would kill all the snakes and there wouldn't be any snakes. Yeah, hopeful. <laughs> now, initially this worked very well. Um until the local Indians started thinking, oh, I'll get an incentive if I kill a snake. And we're running out of snakes. So what did they do? They started breeding snakes. <laughs> so they bred the snakes, they killed the snakes, and they got the money. Now, after some time, the government officials caught on, caught, actually caught on to this, and they sort of said, oh, you can't be doing that. So they cut off the program. Um, and so guess what happened? There were more snakes. There were more snakes than there were to start with, and so this coined this 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 incident coined the term the cobra effect. Okay. Um, that is, if you create an incentive or a measurement and start rewarding people for that particular measurement or incentive, then you get perverse results. Mm. You get, in the case of cobras, you get the opposite of what you want, which is mm. fewer snakes. You get more snakes, and this is expressed in all sorts of ways. Um, Goodhart's law suggests that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Hmm. So when you measure something and then that becomes the target of what it is that you're, you're doing, hmm. then it ceases to be a good measure. Now, both of these, the Cobra effect and, and, and um, Goodhart's law, I think apply directly to what's going on with education in Australia today, where the measures of what's going on in education start to become the targets themselves. Hmm. ATAR scores, <laughs> VCE results. NAPLAN scores, PISA tests, international comparisons. Leads to payment by results. And indeed, um, just... Particularly for teachers. So apart from COBRAs in India and, and, <laughs> and, um, and Goodhart's Law, there's an even sort of more, more exact way of expressing it, which I'd like to share with you. And um, a fellow called Campbell came up with one, and he said, the more any quantitative social indicator, that is a measure of what people do, mm. is used for decision-making, for people, social decision-making, the more subject it will be to corruption. 
and pressures, and the more apt it will be to distort and actually corrupt the whole social process that it's intended to measure. Mm. So the measurement itself starts to corrupt and and distort exactly what's going on. Mm. And what we're going to do now on the DOGS program is we're going to give you some evidence of this. Not just what happened in the past, but what's happening now because the measures by which Simon Birmingham and the measures, measures by, by who's the Prime Minister again? I keep forgetting. It doesn't matter. Oh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> They're all the same. Who are the Prime Minister? The measures that the, everyone seems to be so obsessed with when it comes to education mm. are driving where the money goes, are driving what the teachers do, are driving what the parents think, are driving what the kids do in class. And the process of education has turned this really weird, distorted thing. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask Dale. There's a, there's a, there's a lovely piece of correspondence which... Um, I have very gleefully lifted from the Save Our Schools website. I'm up in Canberra. Um, It's a personal story. It's a personal anecdote of someone who has had experience with the education system over many decades about what was, what is, and what will be. So, um, Dale, can you share that with us? Thanks, Rob. Yeah. uh, It's an article by Henry Grossick, and uh, it's entitled Fighting for Equity in Education, Dreaming the Impossible Dream. My father and I sat in a small office, nondescript in many ways, save for the clutter and sense of urgency that pervaded the atmosphere on that hot and humid January day. The teacher hustled about the room, shuffling papers and wiping the sweat from his brow. This was a big day for me. The following week, I was about to start secondary school and my father was enrolling me at the local high school. At a time, at the time, a prestigious country high school, affectionately known as the school on the hill. The hilltop address of the high school was shared with the local technical school, though it was never referred to as such. That title belonged exclusively to the high school. Despite sharing a geographical site, not much else was shared between the schools, as far as I can recollect. Oh, from time to time, on occasion, when our attention wandered from our studies, we were curtly reminded that it was a privilege to be attending the school on the hill and that privilege could easily be forfeited were we not to refocus on our studies. The consequence? We would complete our studies at the technical school, with the clear inference being that any plans we may have had for attending university would be dashed. That was the 60s. Fast forward to the 80s by which time I was at the beginning of my career in senior leadership roles at a medium-sized suburban primary school in Melbourne. Our school council president, a former AFL champion player and in retirement a sports teacher at a prestigious private school, introduced me to the brutality by which schools massaged their reputations. Back then, he revealed, Year 12 students at at that school did not only complete their studies at that school, but in addition had to earn the right to sit their Year 12 exams as a student of that school. Those that didn't, well, they were off to the exhibition building in the city, sitting their Year 12 exams most certainly, but just as certainly not as students of that particular private school. They sat as public students belonging to... No one, as it were, and they would have known it. 30 years have passed, and what has changed? If the current debates that swirl around us in the media are any indication, very little that is good has occurred. Newspaper headlines such as the reasons... 
the reason schools lock students out of the VCE and I deserve another chance, the student no school wants. And they thought I'd become a tradie, why schools lock students out of VCE. Paint an alarming picture of current secondary school practice in some schools. What is driving this problematic trend in education? Back in the 60s, as far as I can recollect, headlines such as those appearing in our newspapers in recent times were non-existent. It would appear that the practice of dissuading students from sitting their VCE exams and encouraging them to seek a vocational alternative, the Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning or VCAL, is a more recent strategy. Then there's the option provided by some schools to have students opt for an unscored VCE. That is, complete their VCE without receiving an Australian tertiary admission rank or ATAR score, meaning that in effect they do not sit the end of year VCE examinations. Judging by the commentary, several possibilities would be at play in this trend. Advocates for broadening the types of assessment options available to Year 12 students vehemently dismiss claims that the intent of the exercise is to embellish school's VCE results. Rather, they argue, it's aimed at ensuring that students for whom a tertiary course at, at university is not a realistic option stay at school longer, suffer less pointless stress in their final years of secondary schooling and undertake courses better suited to their talents and interests. This makes eminent sense. After all, most jobs in the workforce do not require a university degree. There's plenty of evidence indicating that early school leavers, and by that here it is meant those students who drop out from secondary school as soon as it's legally appropriate to do so, too often slip through the workforce gaps, remaining unemployed for far too long for anyone's good. Then there's the not inconsiderable issue of aspiration and hope. While at school, students still have hope. The more hope I dare say of completing more hope I dare say of completing some sort of qualification that will lead to a worthwhile career. The contemporary film Moonlight, which incidentally was awarded the Oscar for Best Film, is a gut wrenching reminder of the hopelessness into which students can disappear following the early cur- curtailment of their secondary schooling. That's not to say that students who complete their mandatory schooling years will, by definition, do well in life. That can't even be said of all students who successfully complete a university degree. The twists and turns in our lives are far more complex than that. It's also fair to say that school, for some students, is an exercise in trauma and disappointment. Nonetheless, hanging in there at school would be a better option for more rather than less students. From this perspective, providing students with an incentive to stay at school longer is highly desirable. One school, which has boldly come out and stated its case for requiring students to opt in if they want an ATAR, is Templestowe College in Melbourne's northeast. As was reported in the Age newspaper recently, the school has embarked on a revolutionary approach, one which, as its principal Peter Hutton explains, Finishing their schooling at Templestowe College without an ATAR would become the default option for students. In arguing this strategy, Hutton says, If one of our aims is to encourage a love of learning, why would you make their final years of learning a hell? We don't want this to be a dirty little secret where kids are meant to feel ashamed. I want to bring it out into the light and present and present it as a really viable option. 
Templestowe College are to be commended for their transparency and frankness. Sadly, that's not the case for all others. I can't help but think of the 80s and the students made to sit their Year 12 exams as belonging to no school. I have no doubt that it was not an isolated case at the time and from the stories told today, it would seem that the market forces approach which has gained momentum in our education system has much for which to answer. Central to the market approach to education is what is commonly termed the commodification of education. Put simply, this means that learning becomes a process where an economic value is attached to the outcomes. That is, good marks for subjects studied, with the eventual pay dirt being a quality job. The better the marks, the better the options for desirable courses at, of course, the more prestigious tertiary institutions, read our sandstone universities. It's important to remember that not all learning is assigned an economic value. Indeed, it's the very measurable, tangible learning that is undertaken in our schools that is assigned such valuable. Little wonder then that our NAPLAN tests and international tests, trends in international mathematics and science, that's TIMS, Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, and of course VCE with its attached ATAR scales, scores rule supreme. No irony intended, but Einstein himself an unremarkable school student, would make the connection between an increasingly commodified education system and the appeal to some fee-paying schools, private schools, and sadly some of our own government schools of pushing boundaries to outperform each other in their VCE results. This at the potential expense of their students, it could be argued. There should be more to education than that, and indeed there is. One of the more frustrating features of our spiral down the path of high-stakes testing regimes in our schools is that we have no way of comparing school performance beyond the narrow confines of predominantly tests in literacy, numeracy, as per NAPLAN, and to that science can be thrown in for TIMS and PISA tests. Then there's VCE with ATAR scores, all designed primarily for entrance to university. Sadly, the language of our day speaks of high-performing and underperforming schools on the basis of these narrow indicators. This, quite apart from the fact that, firstly, schools don't operate on a level playing field of resourcing, and secondly, students are enticed from government schools based simply on their academic or sporting prowess by some private schools. The free enter enterprise model of education explains this all very neatly. Schools with the best VCE results command the most clout for enrolments and, in the case of private schools, the highest fees. Student segregation based on social and academic advantage logically follows. Little wonder then that the gap in educational performance between the students from our more affluent and poorer families is one of the highest in all OECD countries in international tests such as PISA. So many schools do wonderfully well, both on shoestring budgets and in the most challenging of circumstances in ways that matter so much, student and family well-being being a prime example. Unfairly, however, they are left behind in the public wake of others who also, it should be acknowledged, do well, but for whom these free market times in education are a boon. A final point should be made for those amongst us obsessed with having 
us follow the path of Asian countries and cities that outperform our students on TIMS and PISA tests. Education systems cannot be divorced from the broader cultural context of their host nations. By definition, education systems are integrally woven within the tapestries of each nation's culture. We should be mindful of that. Simply cherry-picking one aspect of a country's culture to import is fraught with the possibility of failure and disappointment. It should not go unnoticed that there that more than a few Asian nations valuing our existing education system more than a few Asian nations value our existing education system with its flexibility and emphasis on creativity. Maybe, just maybe, the move towards a broader basis for student engagement and success in senior secondary schools, such as Templestowe College, will be the dawn of a new era in our school system. If it proves to be so, then that will be truly revolutionary and will rewrite, rewrite the rules of engagement for all schools. If not, then tilting at windmills is no bad thing. If it were, if it were there would be no place for Don Quixote and the impossible dream. Indeed. Thank you very much, Dar. Now, it's interesting. Um, we are the dogs are often cu- accused of being like Don Quixote or the man from La Mancha tilting at impossible dreams. But um, not so much anymore. Um, we're not a voice in the wilderness as we have been for decades because uh, what we're saying now makes a great deal of sense. Um, how does what Dale's just described, that, that very interesting and I think well-fulled-out anecdote, um, how does that describe the Cobra effect? Well, he's talking about a series of perverse incentives Now, the idea is that if you want kids to do well in school, and that is a good education, then you just choose the kids who do well uh, in your school, you put them up for the tests, and then obviously, by definition, you have a good school. It's a perverse incentive. Well, of course they have. And they've Um, always sent what they regarded as the failures to the state schools, and we've welcomed them, and they've done well too. Indeed. Of course they have. But um, in, in general, this, this setting up of perverse incentives, you know, paying for dead cobras, setting up perverse incentives, I think we'll come back to the detail of what's implied in what's been said after these messages. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Let's make it the largest walk yet. Demanding permanent protection in Australia for asylum seekers found to be refugees. Closure of detention centres and freedom for all refugees. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Hear a human rights lawyer, a teacher, a refugee and a panel of interfaith speakers. Sunday the 9th of April at the State Library in Swanson Street at 2pm with our walk through the city finishing back at the State Library by 3.30. Organised by the Refugee Advocacy Network, a 3CR supporter. Yes, welcome back to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools and our website is www.adogs.info. 
That's www.adogs.info. Yeah, we've been talking about perverse incentives in the education system in Australia because that's what we have. Now, to get back to, you know, everyone in Australia, I mean, even Mr Birmingham, wants all the kids to have a good education. Now, of course, you say, well, that's, that's what we want, so how can we create incentives such that that is the case? And so Mr Birmingham being Mr Birmingham and Mr Pine before him, and indeed Labor Party after Labor Party, go to have their problem solved by what is, has been seen as the most efficient way, which is the free market. Free market solves all problems. Free market makes everything better. <laughs> and so you create a market within the context of market within the context of education. But okay, so you've got the market. So what are your incentives within the market? Well, this has actually been quantified by some interesting researchers who I'll, I'll be coming back to later on in the program. But we can, I think we agree that in the system where it's a market, teachers should be rewarded for increasing student test scores. That kind of makes sense. That's that's Payment the incentive. results, not a new idea. It goes back to the 19th century and it was knocked um, on the head. Well, <laughs> the intended effect of that is to improve teacher effectiveness and indeed to improve student learning. Rubbish. But what does it lead to? What's actually happening? Um, well, it's just been, been highlighted. Um, teachers teach to the test because the test mm. is the measure of the test score, isn't it? Of course. And so the emphasis then is on short-term learning, short-term, mm. short-term, short-term, test, test, test. That's what's happening, and that's what that incentive to reward teachers for good test scores is creating. In the humanities, it's a little bit more complicated, Robert. The teachers teach to what they know, if they are in the know, the markers of their essays are going to want to hear so that it's a very subtle sort of propaganda or basic um, Mm. ideas. So other ideas, often the children's ideas, don't get a a look Mm. in there. Indeed. And so schools, um, as part of this free market system, are to be rewarded for increasing um, the satisfaction of the parents and and Mm. student communities, of course. Yeah, which, 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 which relates to the market. And the idea of this is this will improve accountability and ensure customer satisfaction, mm. parents, students. But what actually happens as a result of this perverse incentive? Well, um, you get less work at the school. Mm. And in fact, you start inflating the grades of the students because the students who get good marks are always happier. Mm. What's actually going on? Um, and this is also a problem in universities. Um, this is probably universities where various professional organisations now refuse to accept a degree at a university that an architect can be an architect or a lawyer can be a lawyer or a doctor can be a doctor. They, they, the professional associations now have their own entrance exams mm. uh, because just having a degree is, is, is no longer sufficient to, to mm. practice because, because of these various effects. Mm. But I'd like to just go back to the secondary school system and, and have a very specific um, example, which I think would be nice to to highlight about how you create this cobra effect where, you know, back going back to the cobras again, you you say we're going to put a bounty on each dead snake and then everyone starts breeding snakes and they may start making money. So in this economy, in this snake-like economy, mm-hmm. um, there are winners and there are losers. Well, the Indians were much more intelligent than the Tasmanians because the Tasmanians lost their thylacine, didn't they? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Mm, they didn't breed them. <laughs> oh, one, there was one lady in Hobart who tried, but it didn't work. Yeah. Now, because it is a fact in Australia, and I have to admit it as a fact, that if you are poor, you are not likely to get as well a good an education as if you come from a rich family. 
that's a disgusting fact, actually. Mm, it's, it's accepted as fact by Trevor. It's abhorrent. It's absolutely, absolutely abhorrent. And the fact that the fact that it's now up to between three and five years difference in terms of level of education. Oh, it's national dis- suicide. Disgust. Mm. It, it, in fact, it is. It's, mm. a, it's a series of perverse incentives um, that create um, a a stagnant and, in fact, backwards-looking education system, mm. which is what we have in Australia. But there's little tiny microcosms where the COBRA effect becomes the COBRA effect becomes really apparent as to what's going on in a marketplace and where, and where the law that suggests that when a measure becomes a target, mm. then the measure ceases to be useful. In microcosm, it's actually happening um, between three state schools here in the middle of Melbourne. And one of those state schools is Melbourne Girls College. Now, Melbourne Girls College is considered, and I'm using this word um, in scare quotes, like, um, like, <laughs> like President Trump, um, a prestigious school, the prestigious Melbourne Girls College. Now, what's happened is, um, in a couple of years, Melbourne Girls College are going to change the boundaries of their catchment area. So Melbourne Girls College is a state school, so therefore if you live in the local area, you can go to that school. And it's prestigious, so you're very happy if you have a girl and you can go to Melbourne Girls College. And if you happen to live in the catchment area, they're shrinking the catchment area. They're making it smaller because the school itself is oversubscribed. And the area that is to be excluded is the council flats. The area to be excluded has a significantly poorer socioeconomic profile than the area that remains. Have they have they given any reason for how they've chosen the areas to exclude? Is there any sort of plan or you know, um, structure behind why yes. they've chosen that area? Yes. Like yeah. that, obviously we know why, but what was the reason they gave? Well, let's let's get into this Sorry, be, yeah. <laughs> because because the local member and the minister are now involved. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, yes, it's got up. Because what's happened is um, a lot of aspirational middle class people have bought into the current catchment area. They've bought themselves a house in the poorer areas of the catchment area at a good at at, at, at a comparative discount. Um, however, there is a premium for those houses because it's in the catchment area, mm. which is another sort of side perverse incentive outcome thing. Real estate agents love prestigious state oh. schools, just by the way. Um, well, yes, so it's a big point for domain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but what's happened is that the parents who've bought their houses in the old catchment area and have now been excluded are furious. Oh, <laughs> the middle class people, they're furious. They spent all this money and now and now the, ha- the value of their house has gone down and their girl won't get to go to the prestigious school. And they're stuck living in an area with... Uh Non-aspirants? Oh, well, of course. It's just, it's, it, and so these, these very articulate and um, <laughs> aspirational middle-class parents are now claiming apartheid. <laughs> Welcome to our world. They're claiming apartheid. So as we often do here on the Dogs Program, and some people call us polemic, and perhaps they're right, but no, no. They're right, actually. They're calling education apartheid. You know, you know, Yes, fear the wrath of the middle class spurned. No, 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 but also use the middle class to help the disadvantaged children. It's so terribly important that the disadvantaged children are in school with middle class parents fighting for that school to get its resources. Hmm. Well, like in what has been described by some parents as educational part, a large part of the North Richmond bit, including public housing estates, will not be included in the catchment area for this school after 2020. An informal agreement uh, previously met the school provided automatic entry to all the girls who came from that that place. Mm. 
Now, facing a fierce backlash from residents in the marginal seat of Richmond, the Education Minister, uh, James Molina, is hinting um, this week that he is reconsidering the controversial changes. Well, he's dealing with Richard Wynn. And you've got to give it. Richard Wynn has always been a pretty good member. Yeah, well, it's interesting. it's interesting because the bits of the catchment area which remain um, at Melbourne Girls College aren't in Richmond at all. They're in Kew. That's disgusting. <laughs> yes, the Victorian Public Tenants Association has actually written to the minister and was, raised concerns about the changes. It was set up in the first place as a girls' school because they closed a girls' school down Brighton Way. That's right. And those girls came up as the initial first intake. Yep, that's right. And so one of the representatives of the, um, oh, how can I say, it's the it's the organisation of tenants down there in Richmond, said, so what is the point of having one of the best schools in the state in Richmond when the girls who need it most can't access it? The City of Yarra has passed a motion earlier this month to demand that all students in Richmond, Cremorne and Burnley, have access to the Melbourne Girls College and Richmond High. Now, these kids, by the way, aren't being refused an education. No, these girls aren't being refused an education. There is a perfectly good school, actually a nice, nice new one. We, we, we covered it. Um, Richmond High School is being built um, for, for all the students. Oh, that's where the guy was spruiking his school, like a yeah, used car salesman. Yeah, that's exactly right. But let's just pull out from this idea about whether parents get to send their girls to Melbourne Girls High or Richmond High or whatever high. Let's pull back to the Cobra effect. Let's pull back to Good Child's Law. Why is Melbourne High, or sorry, why is is, um, Melbourne Girls High a good school? Why is it considered to be prestigious? Um, Because the kids there are happy. I've taught them myself. The girls there are happy. Um, They get good results. It's a, it's a semi-selective school, so you get a lot of girls who go to an entrance exam and arrive there because they've already done, they, they, they have proven that they can do tests. So, yeah, I mean, it functions well. It has excellent ATAR schools, and if you want your child to do well, then, um, yeah, I, I can see why a parent would want to do that. But this is a perverse incentive. This is the COBRA effect. The people who have the advantage of sending their children there, by definition, want to disadvantage those people who cannot. Now, this is a geographical issue. It's about a boundary. It's about a line drawn on a map about where the rich people live and where the poor people live. But why are all these questions, why are all these incentives, why are all these issues even a part of the question about whether an education system is a good education system, whether all the children, whether children, whether they go to that school or not, have the opportunity to have the best education they can have. All these issues cut across that. Mm. For every child that is included, there is a child that is excluded. What we are concerned about here on the DOGS program is not how well the students do well at Melbourne Girls High. I don't care. I care about the kids at Richmond. I care about the kids at Collingwood. I care about the kids all around in the, in, in the state schools around that area who are, are and in very course, not prestigious schools. Because a school and a student are two very different things. You can deal with the system, you can deal with an individual, you can deal with a teacher, you can deal with an education department. All of these incentives show me that the market, the marketplace where you buy a house for an extra $100,000 because it's in a catchment for a state school that is apparently prestigious, the fact that that exists in the first place is an abhorrence. The fact that it exists in the first place shows that the people responsible are being irresponsible because it's not the best thing for all of us. And I don't want to be in a situation where we have this marketplace that's involved in education of the nation 
And all of a sudden they realise it's not working and they take all the money away. And all of a sudden we're left with an uneducated country, an, un- an uneducated generation, which is what happened in England. Because when they took the incentives away, they had more snakes than they had to start with. But you've been listening to the Dogs Program um, here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. Everything we're talking about is on the podcast. If you're listening to that, you already know about it. If you're listening live to air, go to the 3CR website and um, you can listen to us again to check all the facts and figures for sure. And our website, of course, at www.adogs.info, which also links back to the 3CR website. But um, until next week... And we have much more to tell you because there's a lot going on at the moment. I have to tell you right now. Um, Until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I ain't dead Says Joe, but I ain't dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man Says Joe, I didn't die Says Joe, I didn't die And standing there as big as life And smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find